Welcome to Soylent Green, the only podcast proven to increase yields of mine grapes by 200%. This is a place where we can listen, learn, and grow together as members of a community in a unique and uncertain time, the dawn of the Anthropocene. In this podcast, we seek answers to questions that relate the accelerated changes of our environment at our hands to solutions we'll need on the ground. The restoration and reinforcement of more resilient food systems is just part of the puzzle that can help prepare us for an unpredictable future. We have a responsibility to buffer the coming storm, and we believe it all starts with the soil. But we don't only want to focus on the negative of our inheritance in the natural world. We want to bring positive conversation and solutions to everyone. Our guests are talented and passionate individuals looking for community-wide solutions to the quandary of climate change. My name is Alyssa Hanafi. And I'm Levi. Join us as we pick the sweet, juicy brains of our guests for the delicious knowledge they hold, because we're education zombies. It's our pleasure to bring you this content at no cost, and we want to keep it that way forever. Free education for all. However, every episode consists of hours of research on top of our day jobs and editing from our brilliant director slash producer, Marie. Hi, Marie. If you've been enjoying our content and are able to, we would love your support on Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee. We'll provide links in our bio. We have two guests for today. One of our guests being Kirsten Hine. She is a graduate student in the McKay Lab, residing in the graduate degree program in ecology at Colorado State University. She's been awarded the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship Program and a research ambassadorship through the National Corn Growers Association for her work in statistical crop genetics and crop adaptation. Her current research interests are improving crop resilience in the face of climate change, studying the molecular mechanisms that control drought tolerance traits in maize and in an Ethiopian orphan crop, TEF. More to that later. She aims to conduct fundamental research that will translate into meaningful applications in the face of climate change, done under the umbrella of the ARPA-E projects, the ROOTS project, which stands for Rhizosphere Observations Optimizing Terrestrial Sequestration, and pursuing technologies and high-thoroughput phenotyping for enhanced soil quality, productivity, greenhouse gas mitigation through improved root soil chemical functions. She is a first-generation student who deals with ADD and is intimately familiar with the obstacles in graduate school, specifically with imposter syndrome and challenges maintaining good mental health, which is very important. She hopes to cultivate effective hands-on mentorship with her undergraduate students. Our other guest is Patrick Wood, a PhD candidate at Colorado State University who comes to us from Lodi, California. Having been raised on a dairy farm, Patrick developed a passion for agriculture and plants in his youth, which formed the basis for his academic interests. In 2017, Patrick received his Bachelor of Science in Biology from the University of San Francisco, where his research focused on analyzing the population genetics of native California flora. Now at Colorado State University, Patrick's research focuses on finding the genetics that control agriculturally important traits in both corn and industrial hemp, or cannabis sativa. During his time at CSU, Patrick has been able to detail his genetic discoveries across three publications for which he has won multiple competitive awards, including the Outstanding Contribution to Research and Scholarship Award, as well as a USDA Fellowship Grant. One of his most notable discoveries was identifying the genetics controlling production of cannabinoids, such as THC and CBD, in hemp. Patrick will be defending his PhD research on October 19th, after which he intends to transition into the plant breeding industry for his career to help solve agricultural problems at scale. Thanks for coming and talking to us. 
Kirsten, can you tell a little bit about your background and how you came to study plant genetics? Yeah. First off, thank you for having me. I came into this field, I wouldn't say by coincidence, but I had some really good mentorship in undergrad. And through that, in some plant biology courses, as well as genetics, I did a study abroad in Spain that focused in cytogenetics. I kind of just feel like I ended up here, just kind of like a fly in the wind sort of situation. And recognizing the potential of using plants as vehicles to sustain the fate of our future seems pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty important. And Patrick, what about you? How did you get to be in your position now, finishing up your PhD? Congratulations. So I grew up on a cow farm in Lodi, California, where I sat on cows and tried to do my reading assignments as a kid. <laughs> I didn't do them frequently, but uh, I somehow passed the fourth grade. And how much does everybody hate CCR there? An understandable amount. And Sons of Anarchy. If you know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I liked agriculture, obviously, and plants growing up. And yes, we fed the cows corn, and so I liked corn. But growing up in this rural environment, I wanted a bit of a change, and so I wanted to move to a city for my undergrad. And I actually went to the University of San Francisco, where I majored in biology, and I did population genetics research on California native plant species. And, you know, after doing that, I was like, hey, this is actually kind of cool. As it turns out, genetics, it holds information that can be useful. And the professor dude I was working with, his name's John Paul. And as it turns out, he did his postdoc with my current advisor, John McKay. And he said, you should do your PhD with John McKay. I said, I wanted to do my PhD. And so I came out here because in my undergrad, I was studying the California poppy genetics. Here, I could actually study crop genetics, something that would have a real effect on the world, potentially at scale, something that can really make an impact. And that's how I'm here. I feel like if you were a few decades earlier, that poppy study would have been more effective. <laughs> Was that a pun? Because <laughs> the California state flag is a... Anyways. No, the goal of that project was to prove the California poppy is not actually from California using genetics. Because actually, believe it or not, it grows from Southern California all the way up to Vancouver. And so I drove along Interstate 5 collecting leaves and I tried to tell through genetics where it actually came from. And unfortunately, the genetics say it came from San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't negative data. It just supported the currently held hypothesis of a California origin. I was just making a bad drugs joke. Oh, I think it's Papa versus Somniferum you're referring to. Yeah, probably but, the wrong one. Huh? What's the scientific name of California poppy? Uh, Eschulzia californica. <laughs> I was just going to ask what you guys are currently working on, researching in your lab right now. So we're in an evolutionary genetics lab. Under that umbrella, of course, we work in crops. And so I'm currently working with two different grass species, one being an orphan crop from Ethiopia, Aragrosis teff. It's an orphan crop because it has like cultural as well as like economic importance to local communities in that area. It has higher nutritional value, yet it's understudied in research. So my study primarily focuses using a landscape genomics type of approach, collecting accessions or different varieties across its cultivation range and understanding like how the environment interacts with the genetics and like the distribution as to how it's being cultivated as it relates to adaptation, essentially. And then I'm also working in corn. 
roots in particular. We kind of aim to understand the genetic basis of root architecture and more specifically how that is influenced by drought or how that is impacted by different target environments. And so my studies currently kind of fall under that. I'd say it's more like under the umbrella of adaptation, but it's super cool being in this position. The grass from Ethiopia, do you know its common name? It's just called teff. Okay. How is it used in Ethiopia? Is it like a cereal grain there? Yeah, so it is a cereal crop. Um, It is used for what is most commonly known and consumed as injera bread. But you can also ferment it into beer. Farmers there will use it for hay, for their livestock. It has a high tolerance to drought. It's very dense in nutritional value, both macro and micronutrients. And it is, I would say, analogous to quinoa before quinoa sort of took off globally. It's just, it's not before sort of... Before quinoa was cool. Before quinoa was cool. It's just not as heavily in global trade. And I think we tend to care less about things that aren't internationally consumed or cared about. And so those communities kind of depend on that crop for their livelihood, both like for consumption and for income and sustaining their communities. So it's kind of sad to know that it's underappreciated, but if you don't know about it, you don't know. And money kind of goes to what we care about, right? So teff is a self-pollinated annual cereal grass. Teff is a C4 plant. More on this in a future episode, hopefully. But essentially, it allows it to more efficiently fix carbon in drought and high temperatures. The name teff is thought to originate from the Americ word tefa, which means lost. This probably refers to its tiny seeds, which have a diameter smaller than one millimeter. As for many ancient crops, teff is quite adaptive and can grow in various environmental conditions. Particularly, teff can be cultivated in dry environments, but also under wet conditions and on marginal soils. Teff is a multipurpose crop which has a high importance for the Ethiopian diet and culture. In Ethiopia, teff provides two-thirds of the daily protein intake. It's not only important for human nutrition, but also as fodder for livestock or as building material. Teff is nutritionally dense and is a rich source of protein, dietary fiber, and manganese. Also contains moderate amounts of thiamine, phosphorus, iron, magnesium, and zinc. The fiber content teff is also higher than in most other cereals. Additionally, teff is gluten-free and a method has been developed to process teff into a flour with a wider range of baking applications, such as for bread and pasta for consumption for folks with celiac disease. What kind of environment does teff grow in? Ethiopian environment. (laughs) (laughs) Know anything about Ethiopian? (laughs) It's a lot drier than here. At least with the accessions that I've collected, they vary across altitudinal gradients. Mm. And I'm currently in the process of learning, like, how does it thrive? But it honestly doesn't need a lot of water. And it's really easy to grow. I mean, there is high seed shattering, which can be problematic for collecting seed for future breeding or collecting grains for consumption. But I'd say, I guess, more or less an arid environment. Is one of the goals of your research to make TEF more of an international commodity? I would say that is out of my hands. <laughs> it's all riding on you and yeah, your Yeah, it's all riding on me. These shoulders are heavy. <laughs> I think the goal at this juncture is to just better understand 
what conditions it thrives in and like what that means on the genetic level and like how can we selectively breed to sustain the crop across projected suitability models along its gradient because I mean such models suggest that it's going to be inhabitable over the next 50 years and that can be scary and problematic for the people who depend on it for their livelihoods and nutrition. You want to provide them with that understanding so that we can better inform breeding programs as to how to best target these traits and to increase the adaptive value of these crops. I want to interject here for a moment to talk about the history and influence of breeding programs in the U.S. because they have shaped our agricultural economy so much in the last hundred odd years. To start, though, we need to remember our sweet Gregor Mendel, the late 19th century Austrian monk, whose experiments with crossbreeding peas became the foundation of modern day genetics. He crossed yellow and green peas with the result of getting all yellow peas in the first generation and not seeing another green one until the second generation. He also noted other phenotypic traits like whether the peas were round or wrinkled. From this work arose the terms dominant and recessive genes, which most people are familiar with today. You may have the hair color of a grandparent rather than of your parents. Publishing a paper in 1866, he reported that these hidden factors, or what we now know as genes, are controlling the phenotypic traits. So genotype controls phenotype. His ideas were so revolutionary that they weren't fully accepted until the early 20th century. In the early 1900s, the USDA played a big role in popularizing Mendelian genetics, albeit with the intent to modernize ag with practices we're trying to avoid today, like deep plowing, fertilizer addition, and heavy water usage. But science isn't always so streamlined, and dissenters took up the banner of another, the Ukrainian agronomist Trofim Lysenko, whose explanation of Darwinian evolution was totally at odds with those of Mendel. Lysenko's fervor about his ideas come from a process called vernalization that was known well before his time, but that he believed would allow further generations to acquire the traits of the preceding generation. In vernalization, seeds like winter wheat, which are sowed in the fall, grow a little bit before winter, and produce in spring, are treated with moisture and cold before they are planted. Where Lysenko missed the mark is believing that this next variety would somehow inherit traits of cold tolerance and low nutrient input. Of course they didn't. This kind of faulty science led to famine conditions in Soviet countries under Stalin, who supported Lysenkoism. Today, the USDA still plays a role in furthering genetic diversity and crop resilience to provide food security. In 2011, the USDA maintained over 500,000 accessions or acquired seed of over 13,000 species. In 2010, over 200,000 accessions were distributed. The USDA Agricultural Research Service, or ARS, recognized a need for assessing genetic traits at the molecular level before plants are in the flowering stages so as to bypass the need for lengthy visual field observations. Through this work, many varieties of corn, soybeans, and even blueberries have been assessed for growth conditions, nutrient requirements, and palatability for consumer and industrial use. You said that it may be declining within 15 years? I'd say 50. 50. What is the cause of that? Is it just soil degradation? Is it increased drought? Or is there another reason? So this is based off of climate suitability models. So I would say, quote unquote, climate change. So yeah, just increased droughts, increased temperatures. I mean, honestly, increased variability in being able to predict what will be suitable for growing where. 
Patrick, how about you? What kind of research are you working on in that lab? So I'm actually done with my PhD. I'm defending that next Wednesday. But what did my research focus on while I was here? You know, broadly trying to find the genetics that control agriculturally important traits in corn and cannabis sativa. More of my research focused on doing the cannabis side than the corn side. <coughs> and just to give you an idea of what we found in cannabis, a lot of the genetics that control production of agronomic traits like stem fiber and plant height, but then there's the ones that people may be more familiar with, like THC and CBD production. And not only did we find the genetics that control those traits, but we figured out how to manipulate them to make more or less, which you could want either one of those, depending on what you're growing. You know what I'm saying? Like if you want hemp, you don't want high THC because then it becomes illegal. If you run marijuana, you know you do. <laughs> and corn, like she was saying just a moment ago, a lot of the work that I did for corn in my lab was a, a lot of the foundational work finding the initial genetics that control root architecture. Basically, you know, statistically, these genes are important to controlling root growth do more work to figure out if the math is correct. That's broadly what I did here. So Patrick spent his PhD understanding the genetic basis of complex traits of many important species, such as hemp or cannabis sativa. This remains poorly investigated. Because of hemp's change in legal status with the 2014 and 2018 U.S. federal farm bills, interest in the genetics controlling its numerous agriculturally important traits has steadily increased. Patrick developed an F2 population by crossing two phenotypically distinct hemp cultivars. Gas chromatography mass spectrometry of extracts from yeast colonies suggests that a small collection of genes are less active and potentially explains why one cultivar produced lower cannabinoids compared to the other. Patrick's research is helping modernize the genomic understanding of complex traits in hemp, which is a field that currently needs a lot of work. So does breeding for root architecture affect any other plant qualities like yield? That's kind of the taboo question. So, you know, the plant can only invest so much of its energy into growing one part of its body. While the data we have are still early, we only have one paper published on this topic at the moment. We didn't talk about this much in the paper because the focus was just on root genetics, but the idea, just thinking broadly about plant biology, if you breed to enhance root systems like so, so much, the plant's going to have to compromise and reduce somewhere else in its growth, whether that be height or leaf length or whatever you think of. In the context of drought, if you breed for roots, which no one has done, if you breed for roots at least a moderate amount, it could potentially serve as like insurance for yield. It's not going to increase yield because once again, the plant can only invest so much of its energy, for lack of a better term, into roots than it can say yield. What if you didn't like necessarily breed it to grow more roots, but it just was like better at nutrient acquisition, then maybe would it... To be better at nutrient acquisition <laughs> implies more roots. <laughs> True. Root hair is the Fair little point. guys. Well, so it's interesting that you bring up nutrient acquisition. There was a study published in 2018 in PLOS Biology that looked at aerial roots, so brace roots in corn in southern Mexico, and they identified varieties of tropical corn that, so brace roots produce like a mucilage and that can harbor bacteria. And so these plants cooperated with these bacteria so they can fixate atmospheric nitrogen, also known as nitrogen fixation, that the plants can use 
like 30 or 80% of like what it needs from this interaction. And that is kind of like a novel study of its kind. And so that would be an example of something of a study like where it kind of focus on aerial roots and not even like the below ground roots and how big they're getting and like how that relates to nutrient acquisition. It's I think more research needs to go into it, but I mean, it is a novel finding and an interesting one at that. Very cool. A collaboration of researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the University of California Davis, and Mars Inc. have identified varieties of tropical corn from Mexico that can acquire a significant amount of nitrogen they need from the air by cooperating with bacteria. To do so, the corn secretes copious globs of mucus-like gel out of arrays of aerial roots along its stalk. This gel harbors bacteria that convert atmospheric nitrogen into a form of usable by the plant. The corn can acquire 30 to 80% of its own nitrogen this way, but the effectiveness depends on environmental factors like humidity and rain. The nitrogen-fixing varieties stand over 16 feet tall and develop up to 8 or 10 sets of thick aerial roots that never reach the ground. Under the right conditions, these roots secrete large amounts of sugar-rich gel, providing energy and oxygen-free conditions needed for nitrogen-fixing bacteria to thrive. Breeding the trait into commercial cultivars of corn could reduce the need for artificial nitrogen fertilizers, which have a host of disadvantages. More than 1% of the world's total energy production goes towards producing nitrogen fertilizer. Developed countries struggle with waterways polluted by leaching nitrogen, while adequate fertilizer is often inaccessible or too expensive for farmers in developing countries. Corn that fixes some of its own nitrogen can mitigate these issues, but like usual, more research is required. Did you find a difference in root depth versus root diameter? Like, are you breeding for one or the other? Is it controlled by the same gene? They're correlated. One increases, the other increases, and that would normally imply that the same genetics might be controlling both those traits. But actually, when we did the analysis, we were able to find independent variation in those two traits. And so we actually didn't find really any overlap in the same genetics. But, you know, this is all just based on fancy math. Remember I said we just did fancy math that future people are going to have to follow up on. So a lot of this fancy math says there's no overlap, but I don't want to get two statistics on you. But when you do dig a little deeper, you do find that the same genes actually control multiple traits. I hope that answers your question. So essentially more... Research is needed. Right. Are you aware of any studies that correlate root traits with below ground biodiversity? Yeah, we actually work with a lab here at CSU, the Francesca Catrufa's lab in soil and crop science. We've been working with them on a project under the umbrella of like ARPA-E, project funded by the Department of Energy, essentially. But they have been tracking the fate of isotopically labeled carbon and nitrogen in varieties of corn that contrast in their root chemistries. Or I guess I should say like they're tracking the fate of isotopically labeled carbon and nitrogen from root and root exudates in these contrasting root varieties at different soil depths and different time points. So if we think in just one species, so let's think corn, because remember I said I like corn. I think we all like corn. So are you saying can different root systems maybe that are different genetically, can they recruit different microbial communities? Is that what the question is? You know, genetics is always a great place to hypothesize that it could. And I don't see why not, because 
So for those listening, Alyssa used to work for my lab where we actually looked at corn roots. Shout out McKay Lab. So Alyssa, I'll ask you this question. See, I'll flip the interview. Did you ever touch the roots when they were in the field, like the brace roots? All the time. Did you ever notice that they were slimy? They're very slimy. They're secreting... Exudates? We'll call it exudate just to broadly cover. I think that's politically correct. (laughs) That has, like, valuable stuff in it. (laughs) Just, like, snotting all over the ground. Snot on the ground, for sure. But I would like to think the composition of that snot is genetically controlled. And genetics control roots, as we've proven. And, you know, I think it would be a great investigation to see, like, these roots make this much goo. What's the microbial community in this plot of this genotype versus this plot of this other genotype? But I don't have a definite answer, but I would like to hypothesize that it does. Yeah, especially if you can draw in beneficial microbes through plant genetics, that would be pretty cool. Yeah. I'm sure someone's Mm -hmm. working on it somewhere, but... Like if roots have friends in low places. (laughs) What's lower than a root? The dirt. (laughs) If you just call it dirt. (laughs) Get out. I called soil dirt to a soil scientist, and they were actually highly offended. But uh, As they should be. I guess so. They're not dirt scientists. <laughs> kind of going back to like the more general process, how do you isolate a gene for beneficial attributes that you want to be introduced into a species? So I can think of maybe four ways, one being through selective breeding. When you take one population and another population and you introduce these populations or individuals even at that and they produce progeny and you select the best of those progeny and you kind of just rinse and repeat that whole process and hopefully like you enrich the population or individuals from that population or cross with traits that are desirable. You can do it through mutagenesis. That's where you treat with chemicals or radiation of plants, and that mutates the plant, and you select which plants have your desired traits and go from there. RNA interference, turning off individual genes, essentially, that produce undesirable traits. Or through transgenics, where you have a vector of sorts and you attach genes, sort of like a cassette of genetic material, like promoter, like a part of the regulatory sequence. And that vector helps introduce that sequence into a host cell and you go from there. Before the creation of transgenics, the alteration of crops to improve their production was performed through natural selection. In fact, this selection has been going on for thousands of years. However, to manipulate plants through selection takes many generations, i.e. a large investment of time, and it does not always work. Through the use of transgenics, one can produce plants with desired traits and even increase yields to allow for more crops that will last longer and withstand pets and disease. The idea being that we can produce the traits we want without throwing the dice, as with selection techniques, allowing us to better feed a growing population and produce a more desirable product. A transgenic crop is genetically modified, also known as GMO, or genetically engineered. Genetically modified organisms, aka GMO, and transgenic organisms are two terms we use interchangeably. Both types of organisms have an altered genome that has been modified artificially. However, there is a slight difference between GMO and engineered organisms. Although both have altered genomes, a transgenic organism is a GMO containing a DNA sequence 
or a gene from a different species. Thus, all transgenic organisms are GMOs, but not all GMOs are transgenic. Transgenic indicates that a transfer of genes has occurred using recombinant DNA technology. Generally, a transgenic crop contains one or more genes that have been inserted artificially, either from an unrelated plant or from a different species altogether. In order to make a transgenic crop, there are five main steps. Extracting DNA, cloning a gene of interest, designing the desirable gene, transformation, and finally plant breeding. All genes require specific regions in order to be expressed by a cell. These regions include a promoter region, which signals where a gene begins and is used to express the gene, a termination sequence, which signals the end of a gene, and the coding region, which contains the actual gene to be expressed. In order to obtain DNA comprising of a gene, DNA is first extracted from cells and put into a bacterial plasmid. A plasmid is a molecular biological tool that allows any segment of DNA to be put into a carrier cell, which is usually a bacterial cell, and replicated to produce more of it. Once the gene of interest has been amplified, it is time to introduce it into the plant species researchers are interested in. The nucleus of the plant cell is the target for the new transgenic DNA. There are many methods of doing this, but the two most common methods include the gene gun and agrobacteria method. Yeah, gene gun sounds really cool. This method, also known as microprojectile bombardment method, is most commonly used in species such as corn and rice. It involves sticking DNA to microprojectile gun and then firing these into a cell. This technique is clean and safe, and it enables scientists to transform organized tissue of plant species and has a universal delivery system common to many tissue types from many different species. The agrobacterium method is also pretty neat and involves the use of a soil-dwelling bacteria known as agrobacterium tumefaciens, which has the ability to infect plant cells with a piece of its DNA. The piece of DNA that infects a plant is integrated into a plant's chromosome through a tumor-inducing plasmid, which can take control of the plant's cellular machinery and use it to make many copies of its own bacterial DNA. The transfer plasmid, or T-plasmid, is a large circular DNA particle that replicates independently of the bacterial chromosome. The importance of this plasmid is that it contains regions of DNA, T-DNA, where a researcher can insert a gene which can be transferred to a plant cell through a process known as floral dip. A floral dip involves dipping flowering plants into a solution of agrobacterium, carrying the gene of interest, followed by the transgenic seeds being collected directly from the plant. This process is useful in that it is a natural method of transfer and therefore thought of as a more acceptable technique. In addition, agrobacterium is capable of transferring large fragments of DNA very efficiently without substantial rearrangements, followed by maintaining high stability of the gene that was transferred. One of the biggest limitations of agrobacterium is that not all important food crops can be infected by this bacteria. Wah, wah. At least those are the ones that come to mind for me. When you say the word isolate, I have a very different interpretation. What Kirsten just mentioned was a combination of introgression and functional validation type work, which is kind of downstream once you have really isolated the gene. To me, isolating the gene means how do you find the gene? Do you guys have an idea or do you want me to like give my two cents on what it means to find a gene? I mean, I've been over here with a magnifying glass and just nothing. I got- you need those big ones. Like, you know, you see in those like Marilyn Manson music videos, that zoom in on his teeth. You know, we did some of the foundational work on corn root genetics where we just did a bunch of fancy math that said these genes do something 
to affect roots. So the way you really isolate a gene early in the process is you just do a bunch of statistics, fancy statistics that say this gene versus all the other ones in the genome control something with your trait. If you ever talk to like industry breeding companies, they say early in the pipeline is some weird corporate word that literally just means the first thing we do is a bunch of math. We scan the genome looking for genes that are significantly associated with some variation in this trait, whether it be, oh, this part of the genome is associated with higher THC production, or this part of the genome is associated with a deeper root. After we statistically isolate that genome, then we'll start doing stuff that's called downstream pipeline, which is kind of more along the lines of what Kirsten was talking about. There's some intermediate steps to figure out, because, you know, these statistics, they're not like the law of the land. There's things called false positives. And so you really got to, it's called chasing the gene. You know, once your statistics find a gene, you got to really decide, is it worth chasing this? Is it worth proving that this gene does what you think it does? Because it's a lot of money and time investment to get to the stages she's talking about. That's like near the final stages when you're doing like CRISPR edits and whatnot. You got to find out the genes that are statistically associated with your trait. And you got to figure out, okay, which one or which few of these genes are most likely true positives. And that's a hard process. I'm kind of interested to hear more about the math behind the statistics of how you prove that the gene is associated with the So, Hank, I'll just give you a really basic example. It's obviously more complicated than this, but, you know, just so you can get the basic idea. So if you want to Google this on Wikipedia later, because everything on Wikipedia is true, the statistical test is just called ANOVA. Analysis of variance. That's what that means. It sounds like a supernova, which it kind of is. But you had a population of marijuana, and all the different plants in that population are not genetically identical. Some parts in their genome, they're similar, but they're all independent individuals, such as, you know, Alyssa and I are both humans. You know, we have the same genetics that probably most of our genes because we are both human, but we are not identical. So imagine a giant marijuana population like that. And at one of the genes controlling, say, THC production, half the plants have an allele, it's a version of a gene, that causes high THC production. And say the other half of the plants in that population have another allele that causes, say, low THC production. The ANOVA is going to pluck that out of the whole marijuana genome immediately almost, because if you have something that stark contrast, like black and white, it's going to be like, holy crap, this is incredibly associated with the phenotype you're looking at. And so you'll basically get a, in statistics, it's like a small p-value. I don't want to go into the math much more than that because it becomes not interesting to listen to. That's a good amount of that. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. Yeah. How do you guys feel about GMOs? Love them. Can you like maybe give our listeners just some basic understanding of what plants are genetically modified? AKA, not a lot of them. Every single plant you've ever eaten is genetically modified in some way. So under the GMO food classification, so let's go back to what I was talking before about selective breeding, mutagenesis, RNA interference, as well as like transgenics. So selective breeding and mutagenesis is not technically classified as GMOs, but transgenics and RNA interference mediated genes are. Real quickly, I wanted to define RNA interference for our listeners and for me, which is a naturally occurring process that is useful for fighting off viruses, like we can do that, but also can restrict the production of certain proteins 
through the blocking of microRNAs, causing potentially fatal diseases in humans such as cancer. The process involves the introduction of a double strand of mRNA or messenger RNA to a cell, which basically doesn't read correctly through the subsequent proteins and is silenced or discarded, thus prohibiting the production of the gene in question. So the benefits of genetically engineering crops would be for higher yield, resilience to environmental pressures, basically ensuring food security. And so to feed a growing population of, I don't know how many billion people we have now, on average, it costs $130 million and 13 years to go through the regulatory process to deploy a GMO crop into market that goes through the FDA, the EPA, the USDA. And this is all to ensure not only safety for you and human consumption, but safety for the environment and I guess for the cropping system. So it's, it's something I kind of have faith into, but I think it has a lot of stigma associated with it all, unfortunately. Because I heard they put trackers in the food. Like little air tags. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we think genetically modified organisms as a broad term, you know, like I was saying, every single thing you eat is genetically modified. Everything you've smoked is definitely genetically modified. And what I mean by that is like genetically modified broadly just means has been bred in some way. But, you know, you're probably talking more of putting an elephant gene or something in a mouse. Transgenic. Like, some. Yeah, transgenic, you know, I think it's a hard sell to a large part of the community. And so, like, I don't have anything against it. So here's the thing about GMOs. There are only eight crops currently on the market in the United States that are considered GMO. Those eight include alfalfa, canola, corn, cotton, papaya, soy, squash, and sugar beets. A potato and apple have been approved but are not commercially available at this point. In my opinion, the label GMO-free on foods is mostly a marketing ploy because many foods are GMO-free not because of the company's ethics, but because they literally don't exist. However, the traits that are currently available include herbicide tolerance, insect tolerance, and disease tolerance. There are also crops that have been developed that improve their nutritional value, some of which are close to being commercialized. Again, this is a personal opinion, but breeding for herbicide resistance, although many farmers may deem it necessary, can be a slippery slope in promoting the increased use of herbicides on food crops. Additionally, these eight crops, which I mentioned, can be common in a lot of food additives, meaning you may be consuming GMO crops from added ingredients and not just from the whole plant itself. This is actually a good segue into a question I had about the history of like teosinte getting bred and eventually modified into what we know as corn today. Yeah. So teosinte, the ancestral state of corn that is native to Mexico. I don't remember which part of Mexico. Have you ever Googled a picture of teosinte? It looks kind of like corn, but different. It's got like branches and stuff, right? I remember reading a book a while ago. It's like as few as five genes they found that is responsible for overall. Of course, there's like many more genes that tweak how it's been domesticated. But the main phenotype difference, they were able to reduce the major effect down to a handful of five genes. Shout out to George Beetle. Who's that? Come on, give uh, us some info. Nobel Prize winner in the 1930s. He's the one who. Yeah. <laughs> so who is George Beetle? We still didn't get quite as much of an answer as I would have liked. 
George Wells Beadle and Edward L. Tatum united the fields of biochemistry and genetics by exposing a mold called Neurospora crassa to mutation-inducing x-rays and then culturing the resultant mold in a growth medium that provided the minimal nutrients required for the proliferation of the non-mutated mold. They found that the mutated mold required extra nutrients for growth. The disruption of individual enzymes in the metabolic pathways that typically produce the missing amino acids was linked by the researchers to mutations in certain genes. For this work, the two, along with geneticist Joshua Lederberg, won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1958. Going off of what Patrick has said, historically, trends in crop domestication are going from multi-stem to single-stem, inedible to edible. And so about, what, 9,000 years ago, this process started in southern Mexico, and it went from, you know, they could only eat the quote-unquote kernels, the seeds from Teosinte, how we would presently eat popcorn nowadays. They would pop it. They would pressurize it and it would pop into popcorn and that would feed their entire community. I can't imagine a community sustaining off of popcorn personally, but... I did hear that the older Teosinte used to be more protein-rich and now it, like, it used to have a little bit of, tiny bit of sugar and now it's like the opposite. It's like no protein and all sugar. I'm not necessarily sure about the nutritional profile of popcorn, but... (laughs) What I'm referring to here is the book Eating on the Wild Side by Joe Robinson, who claims that nutrients called polyphenols or phytonutrients have been bred out of our modern day varieties of fruits, vegetables, and greens. I mean, not entirely, but to a large extent, they're not as nutrient rich or dense as they used to be. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out her book or a short interview that she gave on NPR. Link will be provided for you. It could be a case of, you know, we were talking earlier, like if you breed for big roots, the plant can only invest so much of its resources into one part of its body. So have you looked at a ear of Tiacente versus an ear of corn? It's like night and day. One's like this big, one's that big. Yeah, they're all sugar. That's where the whole term sweet corn comes from. That's why a lot of it doesn't have that dent. It stays round. But I would wonder if the protein content decreased. I'm just guessing right here. If it decreased, just because we know we bred more on number of kernels and size of ear versus maybe the quality of those kernels. You know what I'm saying? And also the color is different. As far as I remember, Teosinte kernels are black or purple. I've also seen like multicolor ones. Really? I'm no expert, but I don't know. I just remember that one picture on Google. It's like, okay, it's the first one. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like a very intersectional topic because there were so many things that influenced the evolution of modern day corn. Whereas like, you know, through selective breeding, I think it was like 9,000 years ago about, and then maybe like 4,000 years after that, they got into a point where it was actually edible. And we got colonized by European settlers and they realized, whoa, we can grow anything over here. I guess we should adopt corn. And I mean, that was a huge hesitation because I think there was a whole religious component to like the growing of corn in that area. And so... That is kind of like what expanded or created this whole expansion as to what, I wouldn't say like a faster breeding process, but I mean, corn spread from Southern Mexico up through the Americas and through different regulations imposed by different presidents in the United States and like what are, you know, the Green Revolution, all these things influence the way that we see and now consume modern day corn. And most of today's corn grown in the United States, at least, is grown for cattle feed and not even human consumption now. It's true. I think 40% is human consumption. 60% is for other materials. Like, so that also changed the attributes of, I'm sure, how we bred corn. There's corn bred for 
silage, and then there's cornbread for human consumption. The stuff for humans, I think it would probably, if I had to guess, it would probably be bread to be a little sweeter. Whereas silage corn, they're not eating the ears, they're chopping up the whole thing, letting it rot, and then just feeding it to the cow. (laughs) Delicious rotting corn. Going off of that, I read some quotes from this paper. Basically, it was saying that the Teosinte kind of responds to these low-nutrient environments and shade by decreasing the tillering to reduce the nutrient requirements, whereas like modern maize apparently has lost that compensatory mechanism. And that breeding for resource efficiency should be conducted under low-input conditions or where nutrients are supplied from organic sources so that the selection for cultivars is able to maintain yields with limited or organic inputs. Can we at all speak to like how any other research is going in that realm? Are they just looking to see what does what and what genes control what? Or is there any push to like, hey, let's try and breed this more for that kind of environment, a more organic input? You know, I don't know if this is directly related, but what your topic reminds me of is you've been to a cornfield, right? Yes. You know how corn is planted like in rows, like one after the other. And you probably notice they're not planted too far apart from one another. It's only about nine inches usually. That's not great for a natural plant, you know, because it's going to compete with its neighboring plant. And basically the plant on the outside can sometimes be advantageous, but it can also be disadvantageous because there's things like edge effects. But if you think about the plant that's right in the middle, it's getting shaded from all the other plants. I don't know of any research directly, but I think it would be a pretty cool thing to see like planting density when they're planted like nine inches or 15 inches apart from one another. I think it would be cool to see if that has any effect on yield. I would like to think that it does, but yeah, probably does. <laughs> yeah, that's at least what your question or the part you read makes me think of. Mm-hmm. Patrick, I'm kind of curious. Oh boy. <laughs> where did marijuana sativa originate from? And can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of it as a species? I can. So. And what's your favorite strain? Uh, Alaskan Thunderfuck. <laughs> <laughs> that was the easiest question ever. <laughs> You've probably heard indica versus sativa or hybrid strains when you go to the dispenser or whatnot. I don't really believe in that just because the science doesn't strictly support it. There's stuff here and there, but the science is so new because it's been illegal for so long to study that the field is so nascent. You know what I mean? It needs to have more research. And so at the moment, I'm not sold on it. Where does cannabis sativa originate? Well, the hypothesis forever has been somewhere in Asia where they used it for clothing, old medicines, and in some cases, food. In a lot of my research, I actually did a lot of genetic tests to figure out what was the geographic origin of the species. And I sampled cannabis from North Korea and China. I can tell you an interesting story how I got the stuff from North Korea, too, if you want. Please do. So how do we know humans originated in Africa? In terms of genetics, people in Africa are more genetically diverse than anywhere else in the world. Do you remember from your basic biology classes called founder effects? As small populations leave the main population, they take less and less genetic variation with them. But you can use that information to trace it back to the origin spot. So Asian cannabis is more genetically diverse than anywhere else in the world. And that's been supported by multiple studies, not just my own research. But we've all answered it different ways, but we all come to the same conclusion. Like in science, if something is right, it should be right in multiple different ways, right? Do you know what I mean when I say like annual versus perennial or monoecious versus dioecious? Yes. So cannabis is pretty cool. It evolved from progenitors that 
were monoecious and perennial, meaning they grow for multiple field seasons. It evolved from progenitors that were that into this weird species that is annual, but it has both monoecious and dioecious cultivars, meaning some of the cultivars have male and female components on the same plant. Other cultivars have them on very distinct two different individuals. Very cool. And so a lot of the genetics research in this species is on trying to figure out like what's maintaining that, what sort of selection is maintaining, like does it need a Y chromosome or can it function fully as an XX system? That work is still pretty new. And so there's no definitive answer on that. But my other favorite thing is that it's the sister species of hops. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Do you want to tell us about how you smuggled marijuana from North Korea? (laughs) I got the seed from this seed bank in East Germany called the IPK Gottersleben Seed Bank. Look it up someday. They have seed of a lot of different plant species from all over the world. Very cool stuff, including North Korea cannabis. And if we think back to World War II, what happened to East Germany after the war? It was basically taken over and governed by the Soviets. So this seed bank, it was established by, I believe, the Nazis. They were really interested in just maintaining germplasm of crops from anywhere they conquered, basically. And so when the Soviets took over East Germany, they found this seed bank and they're like, whoa, there's some really neat germplasm from all over the world. And the Soviet Union was huge. They basically had control over all these countries all over the world. And so they're like, why don't we just take the germplasm in these countries we already control and add to the seed bank? All right, listeners, settle in for history time. I couldn't help but dive deep into this place. IPK Gottersleben is one of the world's premier gene bank and plant genetics research facilities. Located in the town of Gottersleben, Germany, it is the primary driver of the economy there today. It was originally founded in 1948 as the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Crop Plant Research in Teutendorf, but was renamed the Leibniz Institute of Plant Genetics and Crop Plant Research in 06, after it had already moved to Gottersleben in 64. As if the name isn't confusing enough, their website just says Leibniz Institute IPK, and I see a lot of references just shortening it to IPK, so I'm going with IPK. Interestingly, IPK almost didn't exist after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Businesses and research facilities alike in East Germany had to fight for legal justification after German reunification. So IPK was worried they would be absorbed into Braunschweig at the time West Germany's seed bank. In 1993, Kent Whaley, who was co-founder of Seed Savers Exchange, one of the largest collections of heirloom and open-pollinated seed varieties of any U.S. NGO at the time, gave a speech that mentioned the events at Gottersleben, and he stated, quote, just to give you an idea of how fierce the battles have been during German reunification, during the last three years, 15,000 agricultural researchers in former East Germany have been cut to 3,000. Although Gottersleben fought successfully for survival and prevailed, they've had their staff slashed to only six scientists now working at Gottersleben itself, and five other scientists spread out over four small research stations, two at a fruit tree station, and one scientist at the stations with collections of potatoes, cereals, and forage crops. Those numbers do not include the technicians and seasonal staff who are hired locally. Gottersleben currently is maintaining about 100,000 accessions, but two years from now is scheduled to lose two more scientists, end quote. But in 2003, Braunschweig was the one merging with IPK to create the German federal Exitu Gene Bank of Agricultural and Horticultural Crop Sciences. 
It is among the 10 largest collections in the world of its kind and the largest in the European Union today. And here's where this connects with Patrick's story. Wheelie and his wife and co-founder of the Seed Savers Exchange, Diane Ott-Wheelie, through SSE, curated, stored, bred, and distributed tens of thousands of seed varieties until they left the company in 2007. Kent Wheelie also campaigned at the time of the previously mentioned speech to try and save as many seeds from Eastern Europe as possible, since the collapse of the USSR spelled a disastrous loss of wild and heirloom varieties, not to mention people, in Armenia, Azerbaijan, Russia, Georgia, and then Yugoslavia, the modern-day countries of Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, and Herzegovina. Sorry, I definitely butchered that. Serbia. Montenegro, and Macedonia. Of his trip to Gottersleben, he said of the Vavilov House, IPK's then-staff offices, quote, On the walls of the hallways in the Vavilov House were posters of photographs and descriptions of Gottersleben's plant-collecting expeditions to southwest China, northwest Mongolia, Georgia, Albania, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, Romania, Korea, Ethiopia, Italy, and Cuba. Many excellent books for the general public have been published by or in collaboration with Gottersleben, including a book written about wild plants in Middle Europe that includes lots of recipes. What was one of the countries that was aligned with Soviet powers? North Korea. And so the seed that I got was actually collected somewhere in the 50s, you know, at the beginning of that Soviet takeover. And they stored that North Korean seed at this German seed bank. And then back in... I want to say 2019 or something, we ordered the seed from the seed bank. We grew it. We actually measured how much THC it makes. It's, it ain't bad. And we got to study the genetics of it. How cool is that? Like North Korean Kush. And so that's the story yeah, of how I got it. that's pretty incredible, actually. Yeah. So where do you see the trend of plant genetics going in the near future? Carbon. Carbon. <laughs> Carbon. Using plants as vehicles to sequester more carbon. I think learning how that works, essentially, if we can get that to work, what the underlying foundations of that looks like, and how can we incentivize growers to do so. It's a working problem. Like in improved root structure. Yeah, so taking carbon from the atmosphere and going back to biomass allocation, so like above-ground biomass versus below-ground biomass more lignified roots, so roots that have more carbon, may tend to be bigger. They're putting more energy into your roots that may reduce above-ground biomass, which may consist of like reducing yield. So it's kind of like one of those things as, like, as we continue to learn to understand these processes that govern that phenomenon, how can we either incentivize growers to grow these varieties that put more carbon or sequester more carbon into their root systems that is more recalcitrant, meaning less readily degradable than other sources. How do we incentivize that? Because, you know, that's how they make their livelihood is like, okay, we're going to grow this much corn per acre and I'm depending on yield to return my investment. You kind of have to subsidize that in a way, but It's a climate initiative that I feel like has been kind of hot on the market as of late. You want my take on the future of plant genetics? It's a loaded question. Carbon is going to be there for sure. There's going to be people trying to think of how can we deal with drought. 
But when I hear plant genetics, you know, I'm thinking on the academic side of this, because that's where a lot of this work starts out, right? And then it translates into industry, and that's where a lot of this carbon breeding stuff goes on. So in terms of plant genetics, remember that study I was talking about where we did like a bunch of that fancy statistics that says these genes do something? But at the end of the day, it's not empirical proof that these genes actually do something. What I think the future of plant genetics needs to do is to stop doing these scans. Like there's so many gene scans out there. There's so many what are called candidate genes out there. That is kind of saturated at the moment. And I think what needs to now happen is what's called functional genetics. It's called following up on all these candidate genes to figure out which ones are false positives and which ones are true positives. And then once we figure out which ones are true positives, to then advance those down the pipeline. Because at the end of the day, none of this work is going to translate to like your bellies being more full in a worse climate unless someone does the functional work. How would you do that? Would you like amplify that or delete it and see the results? Yeah, it's called reverse genetics. So say we do that fancy math. We find a gene that the math says controls this trait, whatever it may be, THC, root depth, you name it. So there's typically two ways that I would prefer to go about. So you're talking about like some transgenic thing. Well, great. We can break the gene and see if that messes up the predicted phenotype. But that's transgenic. You're not going to use that for breeding. That's great for addressing the overall hypothesis that this gene does something for this trait. So when we find these genes through the math, they're looking at natural genetic variation. It's natural genetics that allows these genes to be found by the math. So I think, yes, definitely do the transgenic stuff. That's a very yes-no answer as to whether or not this gene functions as it predicts it. But in terms of using it for like practical utility, you want to functionally validate those natural genetics. And so the way you would do that is basically by getting two different inbred varieties that differ in their genetics only at that one gene. That's kind of a tall order, doable, but it takes time. And you got to find the people that are willing to invest that time. I've done a little bit of that, and it's actually been pretty cool. But, you know, that's just one gene of the how many studies are out there that did these genome scans versus functional genetics. So that's what I think the future of plant genetics needs to be, because the unique thing about plants versus humans is you can do experimental breeding. As of now. As of now. <laughs> well, we nearly need to jump on that and exploit it while we can, while you can still grow some stuff. I changed my answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think your answer, they correlate, you know, they go hand in hand. Yeah, but I think Patrick's does speak more in like the genetics realm, like as to like what the future holds for that type of research and then like what the potential of that is or like the area of research in which we should be focusing could be carbon drought related, whatever. Like you also mentioned earlier on the podcast, it's like the funding goes to what people want. And it seems like the carbon is very hot right now. And like Patrick said, his functional genetics takes time and a lot of effort. And it's hard and it's hard. So, I mean, you have like the fast and trending carbon use for genetics and then the long haul of like, OK, it's almost like rewinding what you've already put out there and proving it more. All about them buzzwords. Yeah, I'm not a genetics expert at all. So that's why I'm sitting here just like, mm -hmm, this sounds great. I mean, it works for me. It gives me a nice positive audience. <laughs> well, like so I was talking to my roommate about GMOs the other day because the, the question that you sent me kind of sparked some conversation in the house. And <laughs> she was telling me she's a chemist getting her PhD mm -hmm. about like she didn't even know GMOs were good. 
she just associated the fact that GMOs are bad. Society tells me that they're bad and that like if I consume them, it's unhealthy. It's unhealthy for me. It's unhealthy for the environment. She's like just hearing that like it takes a lot of time and money and there's a lot of like regulatory bodies that govern this process. Mm -hmm. And that typically like the goal is for human or for like species at large benefit. Yeah. It blew her mind. She was like, I had no idea. I just kind of thought people had like a gene. And they were like, cool, let's take that from that to that to that. And let's roll with it. And like, there's actually... (laughs) Let's put it out there in the market. Yeah, it's scary. But at the same time, it's, I think, with good intent. Like, I don't really think we're putting crops out there with malicious intent or GMO crops out there with malicious intent. My understanding is that some GMO crops, back to the protein and teosinte versus corn, yeah. is that what we've done is effectively bred some nutrients out of like modern day vegetables. Mm-hmm. And it's not like they're all candy, you know, like corn where they're super sweet. Unless it's candy corn. That's true. But <laughs> <laughs> they are maybe not as, you know, nutrient rich as, you know, like say teosinte or something, some ancient variety that we used to eat. And it's like, right. Well, yeah, we, yeah, that's we, just going to happen. We grew them to be basically carbs yeah probably through indirect selection that we did totally because you're like oh this one has a bigger fruit let's get that one going you know especially what's i always forget the term what is it called when you're like just hand crossbreeding like you said you're not seeing the protein content you want the big well okay so i think what you're referring to is phenotypic selection so you're referring yeah like okay that has a bigger cub must be good that's the good one let's do that yeah this has got like the apical maris them no understanding of like nutrient profile genetics whatever that looks good let's roll with it babe like come on (laughs) (laughs) what's your favorite part of your jobs being able to say i'm a crop geneticist man fuck yeah Let's be clear. We're in grad school. A job as a graduate student. Very loaded question. (laughs) What's your favorite part of your day? (laughs) You know, growing up as a kid, I was always pissed that they never had more science in the elementary classes. And if it was, it's putting a pea plant in blue food dye and lo and behold, it turns blue and dies. But I was always upset at that. And I always liked watching cool science fiction things you know growing up on a farm it's nice to have the agriculture and stuff but you know you get a little bored of course as a kid and i remember in the late 90s you know it's not the greatest movie but movies like lost in space or the first star wars cool science stuff like that or the jurassic parks you know like and the company engine where they're talking about all that dna stuff you know that stuff kind of blew my mind and just like how they uh, somehow stuck a syringe in a fossilized <laughs> mosquito and extracted liquid out of it. <laughs> you know, I get to say, like, I find genes. Who the hell gets to say that? And so that's some pretty cool stuff. When you see it in person, it could not be as exciting. But it's more just like once the project is over, you know, you look back, you're like, holy crap, I did all this fancy math. And then I proved the math did what it said it did. Oh, my gosh, I found the gene. I found the alleles can figure out how to make some super THC cannabis, but we figured out where cannabis originated. Oh my God, we got the Kim Jong Kush, you know, turning the genetics work into like almost a comic book series where you're like flipping these pages and you're seeing like, you give me all kinds of ideas. Now I want to like comic series happen. Supposed to have the ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's pretty cool to be a scientist. You kind of feel like your own little superhero in a way you're able to do things that is totally aloof to the rest of the community, but the rest of the community depends on it. So you're like, yes, I did something. For me, I have ADD, so I get these constant dopamine hits every time my code decides to run. It's it's fulfilling. It's like type two fun. Yeah. 
you know, having the PhD, I'm the only one in my family to go to college to even like get out of high school, really. And so I'm the weird one. And so I get to be like weird and flamboyant at like Thanksgiving. The mad scientist. Hmm, how's the turkey? I like stare at it. I'm like, fascinating. <laughs> you know, that kind of crap. And I could. Corona happened. We were like, can we order the primers? Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys want to provide your contact info or where people can find more info about your work? Just Google Scholar Patrick Woods. Look for the one person in that that does cannabis research. I'm also on Google Scholar, ResearchGate, and LinkedIn. Just look up Kirsten Hine. I'm on it's, LinkedIn. The blonde picture is me. Or you can ask to follow me on Instagram at divine underscore Hine. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you guys so much for being here. This is amazing. Of course. And we look forward to hearing more about your work. Yeah, thank you for having us. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye. <laughs>